you today and welcome to Death Valley Girls Podcast. I'm Bonnie and I talk to heroes about what excites them and we also talk about the mysteries of the universe. I wanted to thank you all from the bottom of my heart to the edge of the universe for listening to this podcast. It means the world to me and I hope you are learning as much as I am. Thanks so much for a great year and hope your end to this year is amazing and cozy. This week we are honored to have hero Ralph Blumenthal on the podcast. Ralph was a staff reporter for the New York Times from 1964 to 2009, is the author of The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and The Passion of John Mack, which is an amazing book for any of you skeptics or believers for that matter. This book is incredible. He is also the one that wrote those articles you have seen in the New York Times about UFOs and UAPs, such as Navy reports describe encounters with unexplained flying objects, May 14, 2020 and House Panel to Hold Public Hearings on Unexplained Aerial Sightings, May 10th, 2022. It was amazing to get to talk to someone on the front line, someone who works to get these stories into the paper where they should be. I'm so excited for you here at this episode. Now, please, welcome to your head and heart, Ralph Blumenthal. Hey, Barney. Hi, thank you so much for coming here. This is a huge honor, and I'm so excited to talk to you and pick your brain a little bit. And uh, just so you know, this is a Heroes podcast um, where I interview heroes such as your daughter and yourself uh, (laughs) about the things that um, they're interested in and how they got to be on the path, the journey uh, that has led them to be the heroes they are. Um, hold on one second. This is sure. there's a there's a poodle crossing. Oh my god, <laughs> poodle crossing. Sorry, <laughs> that's not supposed my, to happen. My doggy's at home, so okay. <laughs> um, sorry about that. So embarrassing. Go lie down. Uh, but yeah, um, you are a hero, and I I almost wish I had like a whole more or a year. Uh, to study more about you, because the more I've been learning uh, and preparing for this, the more I'm like, this dude is the coolest dude ever. Your books are so cool. Um, But I guess before I start getting into it too heavy is I would uh, heavy as in like heavy fun, not (laughs) heavy, deep, uh, dark, but is there is a very uh, important article that you wrote uh, that came out in May 2022. Um, do you know of which I speak? You know, there were so many. I thought you were going to talk about the first one uh, in oh. December 2017. Okay, uh, let's uh, let's, uh, yeah, let's start there. Take it from the beginning. Take it from yeah, the beginning. Please. Um, so in uh, December 2017, um, uh, two colleagues of mine um, and I wrote a piece in the front, on the front page of the New York Times um, about a um, secret Pentagon office unit that was investigating UFOs. And nobody knew that they were there. Nobody knew what they were doing. Um, uh, the office had different names. We called it ATIP, uh, um, but it went under different um, uh, classified names. Anyway, Uh, It was the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program is what we called it um, and what they called themselves when they were public. Um, 
But again, nobody knew that they, they were there and they were um, uh, investigating encounters between Navy jets and unidentified flying objects um, uh, that were buzzing uh, aircraft carriers uh, on the West Coast, on the East Coast. Um, and um, officially the government was out of the UFO business with Project Blue Book uh, at the end of, um, um, uh, let's see, I forgot now, uh, um 1969 okay uh so suddenly we found out that no the government is still interested in ufos so that was a big thing and that got the ball rolling yeah thank you for that um i and one question i have is that it seems like news is breaking news but it seems to me like you have to do an awful lot of research before that and i'm, I'm just curious i don't know anything about the news cycle or how it works but uh, do you secretly work on um, these news stories or, or are you fighting for them the whole time? How does that work? Well, a little of both. I mean, uh, Leslie Kane and I, who is my, my main collaborator, um, Helene Cooper was the Pentagon, is the Pentagon correspondent in the New York Times. And we teamed up with her for the first couple of stories. But Leslie and I have continued to carry the ball now. We're both contributors to the Times, not on the staff. And we continue to chase stories and look into things. And when we have something that, you know, we think is is ripe, um, we contact the Times and sometimes they go for it and sometimes they don't. Um, so, but we're always working on stuff. We're always keeping in touch with our sources. We're trying to, you know, gather information. So uh, the answer is we're always working on things, but um, it has to reach a certain point before you can get it into the paper. Wow, that's cool. And do you find, is there more camaraderie among, let's say, this type of story, uh, the journalists involved in this story, than in other news? Well, objects? it's not always camaraderie. It's sometimes it's cutthroat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, very often the, your, your colleagues in the field that try to cut you down because uh, there's a lot of jealousy in this field, uh, unfortunately. Uh, people don't always, uh, you know, collaborate and agree, and they like, um, you know, they want to protect their their own uh, expertise, and they think that they can do that by running somebody else down. So we got some some of that. We we got a lot of compliments on our our pieces, um, but we got some, you know, backbiting and uh, you know, skept so called skeptics uh, try to debunk what we report and show that it's wrong, and you know, we welcome critics, reasonable critics, uh, were able to answer, you know, whatever the objections they, they have or think they have. Um, but there are also people who are not necessarily of goodwill who just try yeah. to run down what you do. So, you know, it's, but that comes with the territory. We're, we're, we're grownups. We can deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just think it's, <laughs> your work is so important. Um, and yeah, I was just curious if it what it was if it was any different than any other like crime or any other kind of. No, I um, think it's uh, you know pretty much the same in every field. You have people who, um, you know, they value reporting and they you know they they promote it, and then there are other people who try to run it down because they try to make themselves you know look better uh, if they can run you down. So it, you know that's life. I mean, okay. you know, we we deal with that. Okay. Um, well. Congratulations for sticking to it. It's very important work. And then so that article came out in 2017. Yeah. 
That came out December 2017. And then we did some follow-ups. I mean, that article basically reported that there was a uh, this uh, office at the Pentagon that investigated UFOs. They uh, operated on a $22 million uh, budget that they got from Harry Reid, who was then the Senate Majority Leader, the Democratic Leader, who yeah. got them the money secretly. It was not public. And then we did some <laughs> follow-ups. We found that uh, there were a number of close calls, close near misses uh, between these UFOs and uh, and Navy pilots. And oh, some wow. of the pilots, you know, we got to interview them. They told us what they saw, you know, very compelling stuff. And um, and then the, the final story, which is probably what you were referring to about um, uh, supposed crash uh, remains of UFOs, which was the most difficult story to do uh, because... Yeah. Uh, it's it's very classified and um, very few people will talk on the record. And all of our reporting for The Times has been on the record. We don't use anonymous sources. Um, okay. We we like to quote the people that we're you know citing as experts so readers can know that the story is solid. Um, and uh, and that story reported that um, uh, members of Congress were actually briefed on um, on po possible uh, crashes of UFOs and the recovery of materials. Now, again, this is a very a lot of classified uh, information here that we couldn't report, we, we didn't get access to. Um, but the fact that Congress was briefed, or members of Congress were actually briefed on, um, on supposed crashes and that there were slides shown that referred to off, you know, possible off-earth vehicles, things like that. Uh, that's pretty dramatic stuff. Uh, this yeah. is <laughs> science fiction. This is members of Congress being briefed on this stuff. Right. So th that was that was really the most difficult story we uh, we, we got. And um, it was the hardest one to report. And um, uh, but we're still working on stuff. Yeah. Well, I'm maybe this is obvious, but uh, when you say difficult to report, just because a lot of like <laughs> stop signs or or what well it was difficult to report because uh first of all most people didn't want to talk on the record so we okay. we, we wanted to have people talking on the record because you only trust a story when you know who the sources are right um, and because a lot of material was classified we couldn't get access to it because we didn't want to go to jail <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's um, fair um, you know, we do things by the law. The law is that when it's classified, you can't see it, uh, report on it. And if you do find out about it, you, you, you can't talk about it. So we didn't and we don't. Um, so that's what made it difficult. But um, it really was uh, the, there's a lot of speculation that we try to stay away from. So we, we, we deal with things we can confirm. And what we could confirm was that members of Congress actually were briefed. Um, on some incidents, and there were slides that we had, we showed one in the New York Times, um, that referred to, um, you know, off-earth vehicles um, and, um, and material that was recovered. Um, and that's really as close as we were able to get this time. Yeah, well, it's still incredible. I mean, that's amazing. I guess I wonder, um, I feel like everyone sort of has... I mean, their own opinions, but uh, an idea of why things, you know, in the 50s or why things were classified or why things were kept secret from the general public. Um, do you think that 
that the need to be so secretive has changed? And do you think like disclosure would change a lot in any way? Well, that's that's a great question. Um, I mean, was was it necessary for the government to be so protective of this information? I mean, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, I think the government panicked um, after World War II with, with all these sightings um, that were going on. And they came to the conclusion, and we saw this in different documents that have become public since then, um, that uh, people in the government high up, uh, uh, from the president on down, um, particularly people in the Pentagon, decided that the public wasn't ready for this information, that it would panic the people or that it would show that the government was not um, able to protect, uh, you know, Americans. So they came up with all these fake stories, uh, cover stories that uh, these things, these UFOs weren't real, that um, people who were studying them or telling these stories were part of the communist uh, subversion. Right. <laughs> um, and um, and they debunked these stories. Um, they actually made them made these people a subject of ridicule, which has carried over to this present day. People are afraid to to come forward with stories because they're afraid of being ridiculed. So the government, you know, made a decision. Important people in the government that they were going to not own up to what these things really were, which was unknown, real unknown things. Yeah. But, but you know, they existed in reality. They weren't hallucinations, um, and uh, and they were going to uh, create doubt in people's minds, and that has persisted to this day, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I can understand to a certain extent why uh, I think, <clears throat> I mean, I the more I know about this, the more I can understand is this, I think it's not, to me, it's not a question of if, it's a question of what the hairy heck is this stuff? Yeah. And well, when... that's right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, you know, the um, we, we've come a long way, actually, because last year the government uh, uh, did come out, the Pentagon did come out with a report um, uh, where they said really for the first time that these things are real, um, that they physically exist. They don't know what they are where they come from or, you know, who's flying them or what is flying them, but, but they're real. And, yeah. um, and they have the potential of causing, you know, accidents with, with, uh, aircraft. So that was a big breakthrough. So, uh, yeah. that is progress. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, but do you think that like, not full disclosure, but like just if they were, if the government were to just be like, listen, oopsies we made a mistake we decided not to tell you because we weren't sure what it is but we don't know what it is yes it exists do, do you think that that would have a huge impact like they thought it would well well they've said that basically they said okay they didn't say we made a mistake they said in this last report in 2021 the uap task force report they said yeah these are these things are physically real um um we don't know what they are, but they're they're real, and they can cause they can they have the potential of causing crashes. Now, um, you know, do I think that this would cause a panic across the, the, the? I don't think so. I think American people have been through a lot, and the worst thing uh, they 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 feel many people feel is that to be lied to, 
because yeah. you, you really don't know what the government is up to. Uh, if they tell the truth, um, at least you you have some faith in in that. But look, there are some legitimate national security issues here that you have to be naive not to acknowledge. And one is you don't want enemies, earthly enemies, to know how much you know about advanced technology. So if our instrumentation is picking up certain things, uh, it's not necessarily what you want the government to, to, to acknowledge. Right. Um, you know, how, how capable we are at picking right. up. Uh, I guess, yeah, yeah, that's a pretty common thing theme among the um, experiencers and contactees that I know that they're like, when they do tell us, better watch out, something yeah. bad's about to happen. <laughs> yeah, um, which I think is funny, but um, I guess uh, I, your book, The Believer, um, uh, if I, I just want to applaud you on that uh that i i didn't really look too much into it until uh, the last couple days i've been reading it and i think it's uh, amazing i think that there's so much information in there and it's such a great um such a great way to explain the story from such a you know strong and uh science based uh background and i guess uh if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about how you got into um i i my i think that you got into um this phenomenon through writing this book but uh yeah maybe not but can you explain john mack and your uh writing sure. of this um, book please i mean i you know i i started off growing up as a kid I, I was interested in science fiction i like a lot of kids today you read about uh uh the great masters of science fiction ray bradbury and isaac asimov you know writing stories um after world war ii about trips to mars and outer space and all that which was all you know fiction um, so I grew up with that stuff. And then I basically um, stopped reading science fiction. Um, and in 2004, I was a New York Times correspondent in Texas, and I uh, picked up a copy of a, a paperback book that I'd never heard of before called Passport to the Cosmos, which was a written a second book written by John Mack, who was a very distinguished psychiatrist at Harvard University. Um, and uh, he got interested in the whole question of uh, what were these stories that people were telling him, his, his patients uh, were telling him stories about encounters they were having with uh, alien beings. And um, he was a very good psychiatrist. He wanted to get to the bottom of it. And he was intrigued. And little by little, um, well, I, this was his book. So I, I read the book and I, I got interested myself. What was a, a distinguished psychiatrist doing messing around with aliens? <laughs> Yeah. And um, uh, I thought I would interview him because I thought it would be a good story for The New York Times. Um, I didn't realize that he was already very famous. He'd been interviewed by The Times and a lot of other publications. He'd been on uh, Oprah Winfrey. Um, I didn't know all that. So I thought I'd call him up. And then I pick up the paper a few days later and find he's been run over in London. Um, he was killed by a drunk oh driver. God. He was there in London for a conference of on Lawrence of Arabia. He wrote a, 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 a biography of Lawrence of Arabia that won the, the Pulitzer Prize oh, in wow. the 70s. So I couldn't interview him. He was dead. But 
I contacted the family and I got interested and I got access to his his archives and that's what started me off and I was working on the book for 17 years before it came out. It I mean you did an incredible job. Um thank you for this book. There's so much stuff in there that I think is uh where my my ma- major areas of um where I'm fascinated um some of those things are that um he said that uh, of of the people he interviewed, many of them reported that they had an effect um, that they that they were affected regarding the way they regarded the world, including a uh, heightened sense of spirituality and environmental environmental concern, uh, which I think is one really cool piece. And I, I hear that a lot, too, is uh, from these abductees and contactees this yeah just... that was really interesting and that's really what distinguished john mack from other people you know he wasn't the only one um writing about this uh there were other people not with his degree of uh, knowledge of psychiatry but right. hopkins and david jacobs and other people writing books because they were also interviewing people with yeah stories of encounters but what john mack found that really distinguished him was that his uh, abductees or experiencers or whatever you want to call them, um, they emerged with a more uh, specific uh, concern about the fate of the earth, about pollution, about what we're doing to you know, killing this planet. Um, so he saw the, the people were telling him these stories that after the trauma of getting abducted by these beings and all the terrible things that they explained happened to them, yeah, very troubling. They also uh, came out with a more um, um, concern about the fate of the earth. So that yeah. was really interesting. That yeah, the, yeah. and and that continues <laughs> to be a theme I've noticed. Is uh, so just so you know, as I um, there's a support group for contactees and uh, called Ciro um over here in california and uh i just went to their christmas party it's their 30th anniversary and uh it's just so fascinating to me is that um these people do not necessarily agree politically (laughs) by any means they do not agree on anything uh aside from that they mostly feel that they have either been chosen or agreed to um do the these have this contact for different reasons, but mostly that they do feel that it it has brought them an understanding of what we're doing environmentally, and that they think it's uh, a spiritual connection, and they believe in um, there's psychic parts of it, there's uh, parts of it that are um, sort mm. of like hypnotic. Um, all of these different things. And I guess it's just, uh, it's really interesting to, because I'm just coming from like, I believe these people, because uh, I want them to feel and be believed. Um, And, and Yvonne Smith, who's the head of Ciro, she found this stuff similar to uh, John Mack in that she was a hypnotherapist. She just kept hearing these same stories of people um, going you know, being abducted or whatever until finally she's like, there's something going on here. And then she dedicated her life to it. So I just think, you know, these, these stories are so important and these people that uh, 
keep at these stories and uh, write those books and write all of this stuff is just so important. Right. It is. And, you know, what is interesting, you just said it, uh, is nobody understands why some people are chosen for this and other people aren't. And the people who aren't, they can't make themselves be abducted. And John Mack, for example, was never, he never had any encounters. He never saw a UFO. He was sort of disappointed in that because he was interested in it. He would have liked to, um, you know, see it for himself, but it never yeah. happened. And, yeah. and why are some people picked and other people are not? I mean, it seems to run in families. They found, yeah. um, <clears throat> you know, if parents have an abduction history or stories, then often their children uh, end up, uh, you know, uh, having the same experiences. So it does seem to run in families. Why that is, nobody knows. Are people being tracked uh, for some reason? But um, uh, I have not had any personal experiences like John Mack. I, I, both yeah. of us did not. And you can't make yourself have them if, if, you, if you don't. So we don't understand that part of it at all. Yeah. And I mean, I guess uh, another thing, uh, just speaking of that not understanding, is he said um, only recently in Western culture have such visionary events been interpreted as mental illness. Um, and he suggested that the abduction accounts might be best considered as part of um, like a, a larger tradition, like a vision quest. Um, and that maybe this is a spiritual sort of awakening type of thing. Yeah. I think, what do you think of that? Well, I mean, other cultures have long um, acknowledged these, uh, you know, uh, paranormal experiences. Um, indigenous cultures have long histories of these kinds of things. It's only our, you know, scientific uh, culture that really has questioned it because there's no proof of these things. There's no physical proof. Uh, there's fragmentary proof. We can talk about that, but there's very little uh, uh, clear, convincing scientific proof um, uh, that would convince skeptics that these things uh, actually happen. So they, they happen in a, a kind of a liminal um, shadow world, twilight world, where they're very, the experiences are very real to the people who have them, but they emerge with really no proof that, that they happened. Um, so that's what makes them so different. But other societies throughout history have 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 not had the same uh, scientific um, approach, you could say, and they have taken these contacts for granted that this is part of human experience. They don't understand it either, but at least they often acknowledge that um, that that they're real. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. Thank you for saying that. I do think that often. In other cultures, if you see something in the sky, that means you're it's like a gift or an omen or a, right. something is a um the last thing you would be is not believed. <laughs> you know, it's right. a it, it would be a, a blessing or something and um it would have meaning. Uh it wouldn't be embarrassing. Right. Um and you know, yeah. the what you just pointed out, Bonnie, is that. Um, these encounters have a long history. They go back thousands of years. So um, um, they're written up in, in ancient literature and, and, you know, in pictures that people scratched into rocks, petroglyphs and things like that. So um, this is a phenomenon that has a long history. 
uh, and comes out in different cultures in different ways, but it's not something that only happened, you know, in recent years after World War II, let's say. Yeah. It it really goes back into ancient times. Yeah. Can I ask you a question that's a little annoying, but I just have to ask every everyone uh that knows about this topic but uh so you hear like okay in the 50s and 60s it was a saucer which kind of looked like the cars of the times in like the 90s and stuff it was a triangle kind of like the fighter you know the typical one you would see and now I feel like a lot of people are seeing the cigar shape um or tic-tac shape why do you think (laughs) the crafts were seeing change um, do you think, and do you think it's just a, d- does that make you think it's less an actual physical thing and more a dimensional thing or what, what does that make you think? Yeah, that's a very interesting question that it seems to be interpreted by the culture at the, of the times. Um, and, um, you know, in the Bible, they talk about the fiery chariot. That's right. The, the point of reference that people had at the time. Um, so maybe whatever this phenomenon is, it, it's appearing to the people at the time in ways that makes, uh, that fits into their cultural reference, or, um, as you suggest, maybe, uh, skeptics might say, well, um, it shows that it's a cultural artifact and it just shows up, uh, depending on where the civilization is at that particular moment in its development. So before there were um cause people saw them as chariots and after they were um you know then they first saw them as saucers and then they saw them in different ways as the culture progressed it's a good question uh, um and it it does suggest that people are seeing things um from a cultural framework not independently as, as these things really are um so, so whatever they are, maybe they're changing depending on the perception of the people at the time. But it's it's a good question, and it's one of the many mysteries. You know, look, John Mack didn't solve this mystery, and I didn't solve it in my book, and I don't think anyone's going to solve it for the foreseeable future. <clears throat> it's a real mystery. And one of the, the um, gripes I have with the so-called skeptics is that they don't acknowledge it's a mystery. They say, I got the answer to it. It's uh, it's a, 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 it's hallucinogenic. It's uh, these people are fabricating, they're liars. Uh, you know, they always have an explanation. But what they don't say is that, look, this is a genuine mystery. We don't know what, the, yeah. what these things are. Um, and I think that's where we have to start. We have to acknowledge that this is a genuine mystery, that there's no current explanation um, that is satisfying. And that's what really, what what I liked about John Mack, he acknowledged that it was a true mystery. He didn't have the answer, but he had the questions. Yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, and it's so important to keep gathering information. Um, <clears throat> have you, did you re- uh, read John Keel's book? Yeah, I did. Okay. Uh, and he had a lot of good information there. A Trojan yeah. horse, I guess, it was what he he called it. Uh, Trojan something, um, and um, he was a very accomplished writer and studied it to you know to a great extent. And um, uh, you know, along with John Mack, there were a number of people I alluded to, uh, Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs, yeah. two other scholars who didn't have the psychiatric training that John Mack had, but they were very 
persistent. They taught themselves hypnosis and they spent a lot of time with people and they they came they came out with somewhat different conclusions, a much darker picture of what they thought was going on. John Mack thought it there might be some good things going on too, but uh, Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs thought that these aliens were pretty evil. Yeah. They were up to. Um, but so there were a lot of good people investigating this field and uh, um, they, I don't think they were in competition with each other. They were all grabbing at this thing from different uh, aspects and coming up with somewhat different conclusions. Yeah. Do you ever, uh, I, I mean, do you go to some of the um, events, the UFO? Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't go to a lot, but I've been to a number of <clears throat> conventions and I've talked to some of them. Um, every summer I teach up at Exeter and New Hampshire at Phillips Exeter. I teach high school kids about journalism and Exeter is a very famous place in New Hampshire because um, it's where uh, there was a whole uh, flurry of UFO sightings in the sixties. And right after that came the abduction of Benny and Barney Hill. Yeah, Betty, Betty and Barney Hill um, in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. And that was the first big abduction case. Yeah. That, again, remains a mystery. But a couple who had these experiences and uh, and they were analyzed by a psychiatrist. And, uh, you know, book, book, famous book was written about it. And then a movie came out. But um, <clears throat> so that that's a famous place. And um, so I go to some of the conventions, not to as a groupie, you know, to, <laughs> uh, you know to, but to, to listen to what other people have to say and uh, yeah. to talk and sell my book and uh, interact yeah. with other people. That's cool. No, it's definitely, I was just curious because they, uh, <clears throat> um, the like restlessness and um, fear uh, has I don't know, it's is palpable there now. Um yeah. these events. I mean, there's many many, you know, just as with every group of people, there's a lot of people that um are very positive about their experience and happy about it and negative or scared, but uh well, there's a I'm lot just... of sharing that's going on. I mean, the people who've had these experiences show up and they want to talk about what happened to them, and then there are people who write books about it and they want to talk about their books and what they think about it. So um, these conventions, you know, are useful. Um, they, uh, you know, involves sharing of ideas and uh, people pick up new ideas and make yeah. content. So, uh, yeah, I, I try to get to some of them. I guess one question that people ask me just because they think of me as like UFO lady is uh, what is like, let's say you have seen a UFO, you have captured it. uh on your phone or whatever on a camera um you have what 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 are you supposed to do then oh good question um well mufon is one of the main organizations the mutual ufo network uh, it's a organization of volunteers who check out these sightings so um the best thing you can do if you've had a a sighting or an experience is to get the information out to the people who can study it. Um, now, often um, there's not much evidence, physical evidence. So the fact that if you have a picture of something on your, your phone, uh, your camera, 
or video camera. So that's good because it can be analyzed and uh, studied. Often these pictures, and that's another part of the phenomenon, the pictures are not very good. They're blurry or they're you know, far away, just a little pinpoint of light. So you don't know if it's a plane or a satellite or a bird or whatever. So, yeah. um, but there are some very good pictures now. Um, and the Navy, of course, took the best pictures because they have the instrumentation. And um, when we came out with our big article in December 2017, we published, uh, the New York Times published um, videos um, of some of these objects. And that, there was no other explanation for what these things were. It was, you know, they ruled out all the other things that it could be. It wasn't a satellite. It wasn't a bird. It wasn't a fly speck on the, on the windshield of the yeah. plane. Um, this was a really unidentified thing, physical thing. Um, so, um, to answer your question, the, the best thing is to report it to one of the organizations. Okay, it's like move um, on. You know, report it to the Air Force, report it to the media, report it to uh, a move on. Thank you. And do you feel How's your experience, uh, and this might be too personal, and please stop me if it is, but has your experience or relationship to spirituality or um, the mysteries of the universe, uh, the mysteries of life and death, has that altered since you um, started learning more about this stuff? Yeah, I don't mind talking about that. Um, I, I was also, I, I was all, always sort of a spiritual person. I believed that... Um, there's uh, forces uh, out there, God or whatever, that we don't understand. Um, and uh, that we're not just, um, uh, you know, here for no reason. That, uh, um, I mean, I always thought that there was another dimension to things that we uh, have yet to understand. Um, so, uh, and, and the more I read about other people's experience, uh, the more I'm convinced that, yeah, there is more to it. Uh, I wrote an article in the Times um, a few years ago on Robert Bigelow, who is the, uh, he, he's a billionaire. Uh, he, um, um, he designed a habitat for the space station, um, a very accomplished guy, and he uh, is very interested in uh, life after death. I mean, is there a consciousness? Oh, yeah, that, I saw that. You know, yes. Yeah, continues after death. So I wrote a big piece in the Times on, uh, he started a contest to see what you know information right. people could could come forward with, um, and that deepened my understanding. The more I read about these uh, near death experiences or survival of consciousness stories, uh, I'm convinced that there's there's something to it. That uh, um, you know, too many stories. There's too many stories, just like UFO stories, yeah. that um, that come out that make you wonder. Uh, yeah, that's that's all we can do at this point is ask questions, but and not yeah. use our minds to it. Yeah, and I guess I always really like to ask um, uh, if you have a daily like routine or something. Just so you're so prolific and you always got something in that noodle. Like, uh, do you have a scheduled <laughs> system, or what's your system for getting the world what it needs to hear? Well, I don't, you know, when I was at, I was at the Times for 45 years as a staff reporter. So I That's kept amazing. me pretty busy running and every day I would have an assignment or I'd be working on a longer. So cool. Yeah. Um, and now I, I, I retired from the staff in 2009. So now I contribute occasionally. So I don't have the same kind of routine where I get up in the morning and sit down and write. 
Um, if I'm working on a book, um, which I was on the John Mack book for a long time, I was on a kind of a routine, but I'm not one of those people who, you know, get up four in the morning and start writing. And okay. uh, that, that was not my thing. I, I, I did write mostly every day, but not that kind of a forced schedule. Um, writing is very difficult, as as Anna knows, because <laughs> she's now writing. Um, yeah. My daughter, Anna. And um, uh, it's a combination of, 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 of uh, hoping that you get the inspiration, um, waiting for that inspiration to come, and also making it possible for the inspiration to take hold by sitting at a desk and, 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 and waiting for and working until it arrives. So you can't just wander around and hope that the inspiration will suddenly hit. Uh, you've got to make the opportunity there. You've got to sit at the desk, but at the same time, you can't force it if it's not there. So it's a little of both. It's it's kind of a Zen thing. You've got to invite the inspiration to come in and then take advantage of it when it comes. So uh, every writer is a little different, but uh, I found that worked for me that I would I'd make time to write, but not by a rigorous schedule. And when I did finally get the inspiration, then I had to apply myself very hard and, and get it all right. Down. That's the hardest part for me. <laughs> very hard. Oh, and every writer experiences that. Okay. <laughs> um, and I have another, I have a few more questions, but I guess as a, um, <laughs> as a stat, as a st- as a writer at the New York Times, that's incredible. I feel like uh, I just have a question that um, I don't even know if you could answer, um, but I feel like there was a certain point in time until uh, before we had phones where the amount of people's opinions we heard was so few. You just, you know, the newspaper has a handful of opinions and then you can maybe hear other people's opinions on the newspaper or the radio, but um no, I, I, nobody was imagining that their opinion actually mattered or was going to get heard. Then all of a sudden comes social media um, and everyone has an opinion. And so, I mean, just everywhere there's opinion, opinion, opinion. Um, do you think that that changed uh, journalism, uh, like the, the value of opinion? Or do you think that it hasn't, it's still, the journalism is still the oh, same. That's that's a really good question. I mean, uh, so much has changed since I entered, you know, journalism in the days of the typewriter and, you know, the black telephone. Um, so first of all, the opportunities for more people to get into journalism, uh, those opportunities have proliferated. So anyone with a cell phone now can document a wrongdoing. They can see police brutality. If they see it, they can record it on their phone. So that's good. Um, on the other hand, uh, there's this tremendous outpouring of information now. Uh, anybody with a cell phone, um, you know, uh, can be a journalist, basically. Um, the problem is you don't know how well trained those people are or whether they are really following good journalistic principles to report the facts or whether they're making it up or hoaxing you. So it's a double-edged, you know, sword, uh, double-faced coin, whatever image you want. There's two sides to it. One hand, um, many more people now have the opportunity to get their opinions out there or to record things, uh, what they see. On the other hand, um, you don't know how how valid those 
opinions or reports are because these people are not trained. In my day, you couldn't write for a newspaper unless you had some kind of training or you went through an apprenticeship program. So you knew that whatever was in the newspaper was at least the product of some training. Now, you know, you don't know. It comes out on, uh, on Twitter and you don't know who's putting it out or for what reason. It could be a bot, could be you know, uh, a hoax could be fabrication, uh, could be out there to fake news to mislead you. So uh, that's why it's it's a much more difficult environment. It's richer, a richer env- environment. There's many more sources of information. And with it comes some very good information, but also some very dubious information. Right. So it's a completely different uh, situation than when I started in journalism. Um, and, and, you know, news consumers, what we call them, people, you know, the public needs to be much more discriminating on what they pick up. And they don't just repeat things that they hear on social media. Right. Because it may or may not be true. Right. Yeah. And I guess um, what got you interested in journalism in the first place? Oh, well, I was at um, in college, City College of New York. And I was an English major. And I, I actually, when I went into college, I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be a painter or a sculptor. Or, and um, um, one day I wandered into the college newspaper office, just looking for something to do, extracurricular activities. And I just got bit by the bug of journalism. Cool. I just love the idea of, uh, uh, you know, finding out things before other people and getting my name in the paper and having people come over to me and say, oh, that was a great article. Uh, <laughs> you know, the ego part of it is very powerful. Yeah, I know. Uh, oh, yeah, it's great. Ego gratification to see your name in print to um, <laughs> that was that's that to me that was always more important than the money you made. And <laughs> yeah, field. journalism was not that well paid, but it, the ego gratification was tremendous. And um uh, it's very fulfilling to, yeah. to write and and see your name in print and have people you know praise or argue with you over what you said. So um, that's what got me started. I started at college and uh, it never left me. It was it was great. That's so cool. Do you have a favorite era or uh, news cycle, or was a favorite <clears throat> thing that you have done over all these years? Well, <clears throat> you know when I started. In journalism was really the heyday of the newspapers. It was the the 60s when I got out of college and New York had a lot of newspapers then. They they went out of print pretty quickly in the big newspaper strike right after that. But um, I love that time when you could pick up, you know, uh, all kinds of different newspapers. um, And um, that was a great time. And then things started to go downhill with the um you know the the demise of print the slow demise of print and now um you know with social media it's good in a way because you can gather information very quickly and you can put it out instantly but um you don't have the same amount of time to think about things yeah uh, which is kind of a detriment because when i started in the new york times you had all day to report the story and then you came back to the office and wrote it up you know at the end of the day now you have to post your story all different times a day. As soon as you get yeah. the information, you got to post it. Um, so you don't have as much time to think and carefully lay it out. So I think that's that's a blessing and a curse. The, the news is getting out faster. You don't have to wait for the morning paper to find out what happened. Yeah. But um, uh, often the, the news comes out in bits and pieces before it's thoroughly 
digested. So you got to be careful. Yeah, that's so cool. Thank you so much for doing all this. This is amazing. I think what an exciting life. Um, and <laughs> well, I guess feel blessed. Yeah, it was a great opportunity. And, uh, you know, Anna, who saw this, you know, involvement I, I had in journalism has picked up as some of it. She's now doing, you know, writing of her own. She always so liked cool. to follow the news. So um, I think uh, to the extent that I was able to influence my family and 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 students what I've taught, I think it's it's good that they uh, they're getting into this field too. Yeah, well, I think you're also just approaching it in such an important way that um, even if it, it was skeptical, it's important the questions you're asking and just um, and letting people know on their own that this is a, a sort of Western phenomenon of it being um unreal and that there's this i i like that uh that john max really seemed to because i've i've really always wanted to speak with someone that's a psychiatrist or somebody in that angle of just like because i know it's uniquely western to think that these things are um mental illnesses or um right. stuff like that when it, it really seems to me to be spiritual and not like specifically talking to anyone but just that there are um there are messages being sent whether or not <laughs> you know I'm not maybe they're demons too but I I think asking those questions being open to finding out what is actually happening um or you know, what they want you to think is happening and just being open to um, believing the people that this has happened to, I think is the most important thing and such great work. So exciting. Um, and I guess I just really quickly wanted to ask you, is you and your wife made a UFO book for kids? Yeah, um, we wrote a book called UFOs, OHS, like UFOs. <laughs> That's so um, cool. It'll come out uh, April 15th. Um, okay. And it's beautifully illustrated by someone that we worked with before, uh, Adam Gustafson, who's a wonderful artist. And uh, basically what we like about this book, what we're proudest of is that it's it's fact-based. It's not a fantasy, it's not fiction. Uh, we don't speculate on what these things are. We just want children to grow up knowing that uh, the culture is interested in, in what these objects are and nobody knows what they are or why they're here or where they come from, uh, but they uh, they exist. We know that. And uh, children should grow up, you know, uh, asking questions and being tuned to uh, new revelations uh, because knowledge will continue to accumulate. There'll be more information, presumably. Um, uh, so... Um, it's just a good way to introduce young people to this mystery. And you know, we call it mysteries in the skies because we, yeah. you know, that, that Bonnie, that's so important to keep saying this, that we don't know the answers. Yeah. It's not like, you know, I, I have the answer and I'm, I'm trying to preach, you know, uh, something to, to people. I, I'm not, I'm just saying that these things are mysteries. This is how much we know. This is how much we don't know. Um, but at least let's acknowledge what we do know now that these things yeah. are real that that it's a real mystery but they're real they're not fabrications they're not hoaxes they're not hallucinations um and um and let science uh, take it i'm not certainly not against science i want science to to weigh in yeah. um, questions and that's the position we take with this book ufos 
Um, these things have been seen throughout history. Um, everyone's reported them all over the world, young people, old people. No one knows what they are, but they exist. And uh, let's keep trying to find out what they are. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, and I'm definitely going to get that book for my nephews. Um, and I'll put the link and stuff below. But and then I guess just uh, before I let you go um, and before I think of a million new questions for you <laughs> is, is there do you hope that uh, disclosure uh looks one certain way and happens in a certain way and happens at a certain time? Yeah, I hope that, you know, we get the uh, opportunity to to have some kind of a breakthrough. Again, I don't know when it'll come or how it'll come. Um, I don't think that the government will suddenly decide, okay, now we're going to throw open the books and here's everything we, we know, because that's unrealistic. There's some national security issues, I said before, that we don't want our and earthly adversaries to know how much we know about certain things and how, what our technology can show. And, you know, whoever can unlock the secret of, of the, the power resources of these UFOs, whatever the, that is, whoever, whatever country can get to that technology first will be way ahead of anybody else. So there is a legitimate, you know, national interest in, uh, you know, going after this information. Um, uh, so I don't think that the government's suddenly going to throw open its books and say, here's everything we know, but I'm hoping that, um, since this is the business of, of humanity across yeah. the world, uh, this information does belong to humanity in the sense that if there's other intelligence out there in the universe, that would be a huge breakthrough in our understanding of, you know, life and what we yeah. are so that I hope that information gets, uh, you know, promulgated as quickly as possible. Um, yeah. So that's what I'm hoping. But uh, these things take a long time and uh, I'm not you know, rushing it or saying that the government has to do this. I has to do yeah. that. Um, but just that uh, we should stay tuned to developments because they, they can come suddenly without much warning. Yeah. Well, thank you for helping those happen. And I, oh, just one last question. I'm so sorry. Um, is there like an interplanetary like government that, that uh, like? No, I mean the UN is the closest thing. You mean uh, on Earth? Right. Yes. <laughs> um, the UN is the closest thing, and I mean we, there is some information that you know people are trying to bring, uh, you know, information to the UN to try to get the UN to act and to coordinate because the countries are all separate. You know, every, yeah. every country's investigating this on its own and they're not sharing the information so maybe it would be good if there was more sharing of information because um different countries have had different experiences and yeah um if, if they only could get together and share this information it would i think there could be a, a breakthrough sooner yeah um, maybe you should probably lead that committee <laughs> I'll, I'll talk to the head of the un and suggest okay <laughs> i trust you you get my vote um, but well, is there anything else you would like to say to the podcast or the universe? No, it's just that, it, it, you know, I really enjoy talking about this subject. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, very humble that I don't know the answers. Uh, <laughs> I'm asking questions like everybody else. Um, and I think that people uh, all over the world have to keep asking the questions and pushing their governments to, you know, come up with as much information as they can and to share information and not be intimidated by 
you know, the um, the stigma, you know, like uh, you, you're going to be thought crazy if you come forward with a story. So the more people who come forward, I, I think is is great. And I, I applaud the courage of those people who have come forward um, and risk their reputations. And that, like John Mack, you know, he was at Harvard um, yeah. and he could have said, I'm not going to get involved in this because it's not good for my reputation. But he plunged in and he, he got investigated at Harvard. They investigated him, but they found that he did nothing wrong. But he, he you know, it cost him um, a lot of money and, and anguish. Uh, so these people have my admiration. But uh, it's a difficult thing. It's a very difficult area. And, and you know, uh, um, people who, who write about this are sometimes uh, criticized for, um, you know, going down a rabbit hole and, and uh, you know, people who are very scientific oriented say that this is non-science and this is foolishness or so but i, I believe in asking questions that's what journalists do so yeah uh, well thank you so much thank you for everything i'm excited to read um the miracle at sing sing now that really oh. that, that looks amazing to me i wish it, uh thank you for writing it i'm excited to read it Thank you, Bonnie. It was a pleasure to be on with you. Yeah, I'll have a good uh, rest of your day, and thanks so much for coming here. Thank you. Okay, bye. Um